Isaiah 9 is familiar ground <clears throat> around Christmas time. You can see by sermon title, we're going to key on these uh, four names. There's some translation dispute over whether wonderful is a name by itself or counselor together. We're, we'll take them together. But two names this Sunday and then two names next Sunday, and, and that will be Christmas. Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God today, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace next Sunday. And then on Christmas Eve, which is a much more abbreviated uh, message, I'm going to come back to this word that we have repeated in verses 3 and 7, this word increase. What does it mean that you have increased, multiplied the nation, increased its joys? It's put in verse 3, the increase of his government. Verse 7, that will be Christmas Eve. But today, wonderful counselor and mighty God. What's the significance of these Jesus titles? Isaiah lived 800 years before Jesus, but theirs were parallel times in certain respects. Mark Twain made the observation that history doesn't always repeat, but it does rhyme. And there's a rhyme between Isaiah's time and Jesus' time, and the rhyming comes here in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. Now, a lot of times when you're dealing with Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah, you've got a near and far fulfillment. Not all prophecy uh, looks well ahead of itself. Sometimes the prophecy would look just into the immediate future, but sometimes, like this one, prophecy had a near fulfillment. That is, something would happen in the immediate, this generation would see it, and then it would have a far fulfillment, more out beyond itself would see it, and that's what we've got here. We've also got in verse 2 what is uh, you could call the prophetic present. What's this light that's coming into the darkness in verse 2? It's so um, sure that Isaiah can speak of it as if it's present tense, as if it's happening already. The darkness in Jesus' time was what? The shadow of Roman occupation. In Isaiah's time, it was Assyrian aggression. Jerusalem was a city besieged, was about to be. The Assyrian threat was closing in. We read of this darkness in verse 2, familiar words in verse 2. We've heard it before. One of those, those Old Testament verses, yes, I've heard that. Okay, it's here in Isaiah 9. But we read of this darkness in verse 2, and we think of moral darkness. We go right to there. Or we think of the darkness of unbelief that Jesus comes to dispel. But in Isaiah's time, as well as in Jesus' time, 800 years later, people walking in darkness, as verse 2 puts it, the deep darkness, as verse 2 emphasizes it, this was the immediate experience for them. In Isaiah's time and also in Jesus, the immediate experience was being ruled by people completely hostile to you. Those in Jerusalem heard Isaiah, the original listeners of this, Isaiah's sermon given in Jerusalem 800 years before Christ. What they hear it is in terms of political salvation. There's a sense of impending doom inside Jerusalem city walls. That's the context of Isaiah 9. Due to what is gathering outside those walls on the hills surrounding Jerusalem, the Assyrian army. The nation's security 
was about to be breached. The Assyrians were going, to, were going to overrun the place as they had been doing in the rest of the country. And so if you're in Isaiah's time, listening to this sermon that Isaiah is preaching in the streets of Jerusalem, if you're listening to Isaiah 9 in the day, you know you're about to go through again. Well, look at it, verse 5. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. You know this is coming. Every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is he saying? He's saying inhabitation will happen again. He's saying judgment has come to Jerusalem. God is going to use the Assyrian army to judge us for our sins. But the besieged city will be rebuilt. In fact, God even has uh, Isaiah name his oldest son a name that means a remnant will return. For now, hostile government, it's going to overrun us, speaking as if we were standing in Jerusalem at that period of, of history. But another government will rise, Isaiah is saying. We're going to fall, Isaiah is saying to his people. We're going to fall. Judgment is coming in the form of the Assyrians. But another government is going to rise from this people, from this place. And that government is going to overwhelm every hostile government, but it's going to do it from the inside out. There's a clues here. This prophecy looks ahead to the ruler who brings that government, not just to Israel as one of them, but far beyond them as well, unto us including us here. A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah did not know that 800 years later this would be Jesus. He couldn't pinpoint it, but Isaiah did know that it was going to be exceptional because you also know of a verse back in Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah realizes this, this ruler is exceptional. Peter says that prophets like Isaiah, they got glimpses. They never saw but, but only a, a part of, of the whole pieces of what was yet farther ahead of them. But in the glimpse they got, Peter says in his first letter to the church he wrote, they knew that it expanded out beyond them, not just in, the, in time but in scope. Let me read you Peter's words. You don't have to turn there, just stay in Isaiah 9, but this is 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen, concerning this salvation, Peter is writing to the church, concerning this salvation, the prophets, like Isaiah, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, 800 years before in Isaiah's case, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's a connection between what we have in the Old Testament, bridging over into the New Testament, and even bridging over into Memphis here in the 21st century. 
And I give you this cross-reference from 1 Peter for Isaiah 9 because I want us to be careful to keep an eye on Isaiah's time, not just to move straight into our own. Keep a, a foot in both worlds. We tend to come to prophecies like this. Uh, there's nothing mystical or magical about Christmas anymore for all of us over a certain age. And so it's just kind of the season upon us. It's almost like a debt season, you know, and I got these lists and I got to do all this stuff. I got these places to go and people to see. And I, did I give gifts to them? Did I send a thank you note to them in January and et cetera and so on? We, we get wearied by it. And so we come to Christmas and we hear this good news of glad tidings. And the thrill is kind of gone, if we're honest. But we look at Isaiah 9 and we tend to import these prophecies right into our own needs. And we should, the verses I read to you in, in 1 Peter say that we should because this is for us. Even us here in this room. But we should also remember how this played out in their time as well. What it was like to be longing for things that we now know that have been revealed to us. What was it like to, to live in a time where you're longing for that and hoping, as Isaiah did, that he, with his own eyes, would get to see the one promised. But you know, there's some amazing grace here in Isaiah 9. Because when verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, do you realize that would extend even to generations of the Assyrians? Those about to attack back in this day? Again, many prophecies dealing with the future. They had a, they had a near future fulfillment and they had a far future fulfillment. Not all of them, but this is one that did. Do you realize one of the fastest, let me camp on this a moment, do you realize one of the fastest growing churches in the world today is in Iran? What is Iran? Assyrian descendants. We associate Iran mostly with ancient Persians, but Assyrians contributed to the, the, to the gene pool there uh, as, as pre-ancestors. Pre the increase of Jesus' government that Isaiah preaches about, specifically in verse 7, is the line. What he's saying to the people of his day huddled in Jerusalem who know that Assyrians are going to overrun their city, attack them, kill them, put the rest of them into slavery. Isaiah says the increase of his rule, looking out, that's even going to include the generations of our attackers. You, know, you remember the prophet Jonah? This incensed him. When he got God's grace was going to go to Assyrians, that God wasn't going to be wrathful to them, that he was going to send Jonah to preach to them, and knowing Jonah did, that they would repent, he couldn't believe it. Why? Because the Assyrians had committed atrocities against his own people. How could God be gracious to them? But what is the gospel about? It's about reconciliation. It's about enemies being made friends. The inclusion of those who would otherwise be excluded. The gospel applies, it, it covers both, uh, uh, both planes of the axis. Vertically, between God and us, our sin and unbelief displays a, a devil-may-care disdain for God. But he reconciles us, his enemies, to himself. And he reconciles us to one another. This is the horizontal application. The church that we're brought into is a global 
kingdom. It, it includes someone from everyone. This is why we keep missions very intentionally before you. So that we don't fall into the idea that this is an American religion. If you ever start feeling like, well, you know, we just need to bomb Tehran because of the hostile government headquartered there, may I ask how many Christians you're okay with killing in that city? The global increase of the government of Jesus that is the church, ultimately, it's thick in places like Iran. You have a lot of brothers and sisters there. The increase of God's government through His Son is our first allegiance. Our primary citizenship is His kingdom. For to us a child is born, verse 6, not just any child. Continuing verse 6, to us a son is given, not just any son. And to us, we who are from the nations, get in on this. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, middle of verse 6, meaning the government on his shoulder is a way of underscoring that he bears the burdens of the people that he rules. That's what that means. The government on his shoulders means he bears the burdens of the people he rules. He bears the burdens of our sins. He bears the burdens of our sorrows and our disappointments and our griefs. He bears the burdens of our needs. And because he does, his name shall be called, rest of verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These four names, two today, two next week, these four names describe the government of Jesus, how he rules. And these names, they demonstrate God's care. We immediately pick up the accent of God's care here. But there's also God's countermeasures in the face of global opposition to himself. What is God to do with that? That people oppose him, the Assyrians of this time B.C. on up into everybody in this time A.D. See, it's easy to sentimentalize these names for the care each conveys. It's sort of like we take a bath in it, you know. These are the salts we put in. Yeah, wonderful counseling. Wonderful, wonderful. But because each one is also a countermeasure, it's also about how God fights back in the person of his son. Remember Psalm 2, the second psalm? Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one? And the, the psalm is about, this is, just, this is futile, this is absolutely foolish. It says the Lord in heaven laughs at them, he scoffs at their, at their efforts to overthrow his government, his reign over them, over all that he's made as creator. But here in Isaiah 9, we get a different angle. This Christmas text, as we think of it, Isaiah 9, we find God coming at what opposes him and his rightful rule in the person of his son. He opposes this not with swords and hosts of fire. He can. But in Jesus, he fights back four ways. He fights back by making his enemies his friends, but he does this in four ways, and these are in the names. Wonderful counselor says he fights back with a wisdom that defines reality. 
Mighty God says he fights back with a power that secures his remnant in a world that's opposed to him. Everlasting Father says he fights back with a love that perseveres through everything. And Prince of Peace says he fights back with a zeal to restore what sin has vandalized. This is what we're going to look at today and next Sunday. Four things, two today and two next week. Wonderful Counselor is about a wisdom that defines reality. Mighty God is about a a power that secures his remnant in a world that's opposed to him. Everlasting Father is about love that perseveres through everything. And Prince of Peace is about his zeal to restore what sin vandalizes. All right, so let's look at these two names today, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor here in verse 6 to begin. Of the four names here, Wonderful Counselor is the one that's just, it's just the easiest to gush on. If you ever cringe when people get a little sentimental, you kind of cringe on this one. But wonderful counsel is wisdom that defines reality. That's what makes it wonderful. It's wisdom that defines reality. Lynn and I, when we're in need of counsel, we often quote a proverb. It's found in the 20th chapter of Proverbs. It's verse 5 in Proverbs 20. The proverb likens our hearts to to a deep well. And the proverb says that a, a man of understanding draws that water up. In other words, wise counsel draws us out in the sense that it helps us deal not with what we want to be true, not with what we hoped wouldn't happen but did. It helps us to deal with Uh, what is reality. Reality may be ruins and I just don't want to see it that way. It may be wreckage and I keep trying to drive it around. Wonderful counsel is uh, also promised us in James. James chapter 1 when he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously, liberally to all without finding fault. What is that in James 1? He's talking about a God who's a wonderful counselor. Sometimes his counsel affirms us when we receive it. It says, yes, you're going on the right path. This that happened, it's not your fault. It's, it, it just is part of the fallen world, and it could have happened to anybody. And uh, Especially when we're down or we're down on ourselves, there's wise counsel that, that comes wrapped in, in how loved we are and how graced we've been by God and Jesus, and we need that. And we eat it up. But other times... Wonderful counsel prunes. We've been talking about this in John 15 the last few weeks. It prunes when we get uh, tangled up in misconceptions about ourselves or others. And, and wonderful counsel can show us, God, I've got some work to do relationally. I, I've, uh, I've taken some beliefs and behaviors uh, that I, I, need to, I need to do some work on my manner of being. Sometimes it stings, wonderful counsel. I have felt the sting of wonderful counsel when it showed me myself in a way that I had worked to avoid seeing, but it was wonderful counsel because it drove me to Jesus. It took me to him. If I'm going to change, I've got to get more of him into into more of me and the way I do things. 
You know the Scrooge story? Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's instructive here. Because what happens, I don't know if you've ever really thought about the story. The, the classics are classics because they're layered. What happens to Scrooge throughout that Christmas Eve when he's visited by three ghosts, what happens is he has shown himself in a way he has for his entire adult life resisted seeing. And so it stings what he sees. But it's also wonderful in its effect. Why is Scrooge a miser? Everybody associates Scrooge with miserliness. Why is he a miser? Well, he loved money. But why did he love money? He loved money because that was his security. Because Scrooge was a person who so feared loss. Adulthood for him was building his life so he would never suffer the pain of loss again. And that is a delusion that Scrooge's visitors work through the night to disentangle him from. Scrooge is somebody who is wrapped up entirely in self-protection. Now, how did he get there? Charles Dickens lays it out in the book if you, if you read the story. His father abandoned him to a boarding school when he was just a boy and wouldn't let him come home for a long time. He was a cruel father. His sister died in giving birth to his nephew, and he adored his sister, another loss. His fiancée, whom he truly loved, because Scrooge began to devote himself to wealth management and realized he was really good at it. He had a knack for making money. More than that, he came to put his ultimate security in it, and his fiancée knew that that would chase him into himself in a way she could never reach him, and she didn't want to marry that. And so he lost the fiancée that he really loved. And again, if you read the story, movie versions don't usually bring this out, but in the story, every night after eating alone, before he went to bed, Scrooge reads his banker's book, deposits and interests accruing. What is he doing? He is comforting himself. See, another day of no losses for me, only gains. This is exactly what the ghosts go after because they are sent to disabuse Scrooge of this delusion that's deep inside his heart. They show him he's not protecting himself and trying to keep himself from pain and loss. In fact, it's just the opposite. He made himself the loneliest man in London. Scrooge subjected himself to more loss and only really succeeded in making himself and everyone around him miserable. And one day he was going to die and all his debtors were going to dance in the streets in celebration that he was gone. But the ghost of Christmas future shows him. But we know that doesn't happen. Christmas morning, there's a resurrection, as it were. Scrooge comes to life. For the first time. He won't be the miser anymore. Why not? Because he takes the wonderful counsel that he receives through the night and he puts it into practice. Counsel that was aimed at disentangling him from this self-protective conceptualization of his life and it stung him, but it freed him. He could now give himself and his wealth away. He could, he could risk Knowing and being known. It's a great story. It's a, it's a reason. It's a classic. Again, the classics have layers of meaning. But you and I in Jesus Christ, we get the nonfiction version of this. 
I cannot change myself myself. I mean, everybody who seeks out therapy either directly or indirectly realizes this as the great constant. I cannot change myself myself. Jesus being our wonderful counselor means he is committed to the change we need. We can resist him, but he is patient and he is gracious with us and he will keep working us into his counsel. Wonderful counselor means he will show us ourselves. He will, who we really are, but he never does this without simultaneously showing us who he is and who he will be for us forever. Wonderful counselor is not just God caring enough to give us some instructions, to leave a plan with us as it were, and here's what to do if you want life to go in a wise direction, and here's what to do if you want things to break apart and not work well for you. Wonderful counselor is also a beautiful countermeasure to the opposition that God gets in this world, including how it comes from us. When we buy into hollow philosophies, when we go along with what everybody says is true in the moment, when we go along with what everybody wants for themselves, when we become self-beholding and self-determined in our ways of living, it's the shadow rule of this present darkness. That he is our wonderful counselor, says he will keep showing us where life is found, where life is to be built. He will keep bringing us back to reality as he defines it. And in doing that, he always keeps bringing us back to himself, as himself. And that he becomes sufficient for us. Wonderful counselor is about Jesus' wisdom because it is wisdom that defines reality. And we have a hard relationship with reality often. We deny it, we avoid it, but that's what it's about. Now, mighty God. Mighty God is about Jesus' power. Power that secures a remnant, his remnant, in the world, the world being opposed to him. You know, we were in John 15, as I mentioned, end of October through 1st of December. And we looked at the first 17 verses in John 15. What we did not look at is verse 18. Again, don't turn there, just listen. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Oftentimes we, we stay at verse 17 in John 15, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And we keep telling each other, I got to love you, I got to love you, I got to love you. Well, he says afterwards, why you might find this helpful. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. We're going to have to have each other. And I say remnant power that secures his remnant in a world opposed to him. This is mighty God. I say remnant because remnant is something Isaiah talked and preached a lot about. I'm trying to, to note the context here. If you want to turn a page over in Isaiah to chapter 10, we're in Isaiah 9. If you want to go to Isaiah 10 and pick up with me in verse 20, Isaiah 10 verse 20, in that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Chapter 10, verse 21, mighty God, same thing as we have here. Turn back now to chapter 9, verse 6. Mighty God means he's able to do what he sets out to do. And though 
his doing, his remnant building, it, it unfolds over time throughout centuries. And many in each generation say, no thanks, reject it, want nothing to do with it, otherwise are dismissive of it. What God has set out to do is redeem a people for himself. And the people that he redeems for himself, he keeps his word to, and this is the essence of what it means for him to be mighty God. Of course it means nothing is too difficult for him, that's obvious. Nothing is too difficult for him. Mighty God communicates this to us. The limitlessness of our Savior's reach and resources, nothing gets away from him. Nothing is too much for him. But the power core of his being mighty God as a name is that God keeps his word. What he has started in us, he will complete. What he has promised to be for us in Jesus is what he will be. No matter how your life ends, no matter what it's full of, what troubles, what disappointments, what weaknesses, what reversals, what tragedies, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Why? Because he has the power. Why? Because he's the mighty God. It doesn't mean he'll always keep us safe. God has never promised you safety. What he has promised us is security. That He will secure us in a way that is better than mere safety. What he's promised us in the Lord Jesus is that he will glorify us. It's why you get redeemed. You get redeemed in order to be renewed. For your earthly suit, your, your body to be resurrected as Jesus himself was, and the reason this is so is because death is our number one problem. If you think, oh boy, Cole's really morbid this morning. I thought this was Christmas. This is why the glad tidings of Christmas come. Because death is our number one problem. Can God do something about that? If he can't, he's not mighty. If he can't do something about the collective universal problem of living in a fallen world, which is death, if he can't do anything about that, he's not mighty, no matter what else he can otherwise do. But to be able to do something about death, you have to be able to keep the word that you speak into nothing and make a reality from it. And that's what he does. I'll, I'll put this in a picture. I don't know if it'll work or not. This is a bit of a risk. Oh no, he's doing that at Christmas too. Uh, our youngest daughter turned 16 back in October and she asked if for her 16th birthday, mom and dad would take her, just her, none of her siblings, on a trip. And she chose Los Angeles because she wanted to go visit a movie studio because she uh, loves movies. And... Um, we did one better. We went to Universal Studios out in Hollywood. The nice thing about that is you not only get a studio tour, but they've sort of built a theme park on a, a, a part of the whole complex that is Universal Studios out there. And so you get to see some shows and you get to ride some rides and the various attractions. Well, one of the attractions was The Walking Dead. It's a television show if you're not familiar with it. I've never seen an episode. If you're really into it, you don't need to approach me after this and give me all the details Let's not embarrass one another with how much you care about it, okay, in that moment. Um, 
but just hear me out, okay? We came up on The Walking Dead, and it was Lynn's idea to go in. It wasn't mine. She said, let's do that. That looks exciting. And I said, do you know what that is? What that show is? Zombies and everything? Said, oh, yeah, let's go. So she leads me in. It's basically a haunted house. But it's done by Hollywood. It's a Hollywood haunted house on the lot of Universal Studios. So you know, uh, if anybody's going to scare you, uh, these folks are going to have a pretty good shot. And so you enter what looks like an abandoned hospital. And there's blood all over the walls and stuff overturned and lights flickering and it's nasty. Obviously, the zombies have been there. They've trashed it. They've terrorized it. A lot of set pieces, they tell you later that a lot of the set pieces in there are they used in the actual filming. You know, ooh, I touched something. It was on TV, you know. And, uh, and, and, and there's all these actors in there. And so you're going to walk through and zombies with Hollywood makeup artists behind them are going to reach out at you and, oh, and, and do all the things that, that they do. Again, I, it's not a, it's, I've got other shows that I watch. It's just not one I ever got into. And I was there because my wife said, we're going in. <laughs> and it's really frightening, except I wasn't afraid. And the reason I wasn't afraid is not because haunted houses don't scare me. They actually have in the past. I haven't enjoyed going through haunted houses. But I remembered walking through the Walking Dead attraction that I've been told many times I look like Rick. I'll take it by that laughter that not many people watch The Walking Dead, but you can Google it right now. Andrew Lincoln, the Australian actor, we uh, favor one another. And um, what I know about Rick is that I look like him. I've had this happen in restaurants. People have come up to me and go, you may tell you, yeah, I look like Rick in The Walking Dead. Yeah, that's right, you look like Rick in The Walking Dead. That's, that's, my, that's my actor equal, double. But one thing I know, I've not watched the show, but I... I pretty sure Rick kills zombies. And so walking through this, it's kind of a stupid illustration, but I'm off into it now. Um, my wife and daughter are in front of me clutching one another as they walk through. Lynn's got a death grip on my hand. She's pulling me along behind her. And they're screaming at every turn as zombies leap out, you know, and, and reach for you. And there's all this grotesque stuff in there and it looks so real because it's Hollywood but I looked at I found myself looking at each zombie like you know who I am <laughs> you know? and it made it fun I wasn't afraid at all because I walked in and I walked through thinking about Rick Rick kills zombies I look like Rick now, in this, I was a fiction in a fiction, walking through the Walking Dead attraction. I was a figment of a fiction in my imagination. I'm just another guy walking through. It's all put on. But that was good enough to keep me from ever flinch. I never flinched. Stuff's jumping at you, coming down from the ceiling, crawling up from the floors, and I never flinched. And Lynn and Kaylee Kate are just, you know, I mean, having the fun of being scared out of your mind, you know. Um, but I never flinched because I thought I was Rick walking in there. I look like him, and all the way through, Rick kills zombies. I look like Rick. I could have sworn a couple times, a couple of zombies went, hoorah, 
you know, I did a double take. And it's not him. It's not him. We're safe. Here's why I try to make something stupid significant. I say again, as I said earlier, in Jesus we get the nonfiction version of anyone's greatest accomplishment and more besides. He walked through an actual house of horrors. He walked through the actual, literal valley of the shadow of death with hell grasping at him. And he feared no evil. Why? Because he himself is the light that the darkness cannot extinguish because he's the mighty God. And he has dedicated himself in redeeming us to make us look like himself. Death is what shows us that we need a mighty God. If there was no death, no need for a mighty God, really. But death shows us that we need a big God. We need a God who's powerful to save us from death. Not just a God who helps you have a better week. A God who, who you know, made the, the, the parking lot part and you get the nice spot at Target in the rain. I thank him for that too, yes. Not just a God who has a few fine principles for you to apply at home and work and school. Death laughs at all that. We need a God who laughs back, as Psalm 2 says he does. And the reason he does is because he's in complete control. And he has the last laugh because death is the thing. It's the one thing that exposes we are not mighty. No matter how much power you accrue in this life, how many connections you have, how much you bank, how many strings you can pull in high places. Death is the great leveler. We love to think that we have unlimited freedom. We can do whatever we want. And death is there to say, no, you cannot. Because you don't have ultimate freedom. If you did, you would have the freedom to escape death. You'd have the power to defeat it, but we don't. It's a problem for us. None of us have the freedom or power to escape death when it finally begins to grasp at us, and it will. What's going to make the difference? What are we going to do about this powerlessness of ours? We're going to think about Jesus all the way through. We're going to bind our identity to his and thereby fear no evil because we know he is our mighty God. It's not just that nothing is too difficult for him. Again, that's so obvious. Yes, of course, nothing is too difficult for him. He's the mighty God. It's that he and he alone can do something and has done something about his, what is most difficult for us, even what is impossible for us, and that is to overcome death. This is what's packed into the glad tidings of Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He will take the responsibility to get us home. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's thank him together. Lord, we are grateful that in these names we're given portraits of who you've promised to be for us.
And we thank you that your word is sure. And not just because we say so, but because from where we stand at this vantage point in history, the next great event is your return. And until your return, the death rate is 100%. We're powerless to do anything about it. Not even the advances in artificial intelligence. Though many people get excited about the prospect of living longer, it's just that. It's delaying the inevitable. And Lord, I pray you'd keep people from hearing that as some sort of morbid talk. We, we have such a weird relationship to death in this country. To realize it's the reality. There's nothing we can do about that except bind our identity to the one who can do something about that. The one before whom death fled on the third day. Thank you for how Christmas speaks of Easter and how Easter speaks of Christmas because the glad tidings that we hear in the songs and in the well-wishers and the verses that get read this season and the delight of children and the getting together with friends and family and sending cards and eating treats and all of it Lord, in that, would you bring us to that deeper spot of recognizing that the reason we can have joy and the only reason we can have joy is that you've done something about our biggest problem. And not just as mighty God, but as wonderful counselor, that you keep defining reality for us and you keep bringing us back to yourself and our intense need for you not so that we succeed in this world. If we do, that's great. But so that we live in this world with an orientation and a perspective that is transcendent over whatever comes. And that we know that we are known by you and that this is enough for us. It is enough for us to be known by you and to know that being known by you means we are loved by you. And to know that being loved by you means we will be glorified in your presence. That death will not be the end. It will not be the last laugh in our case. Thank you for taking that mocking, stinging, scornful enemy that is death. That is an intrusion on the good you made. The very good that you celebrated in the echo of the garden. And you've done something definitive about it. And we're the beneficiaries. We're the inheritors. Thank you that in a passage like this, spoken to huddled people afraid of losing their lives, that Isaiah said to them and spoke to them of one that we now know is the one on whom we've placed our hopes because he is worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.